This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast. Tribal Malfunctions is a thrilling cyberpunk story of gangs, guns, greed, and the power of independent trucking set in 22nd century Boston. I am your host and narrator, Chang Terhune. Now join me, please, as we enter the strange world of tribal malfunctions. Welcome to the Tribal Malfunctions podcast. Uh, my name is Chang, and uh, Chang Terhune, if you want to get specific, and I'm the author, narrator, creator, musician, um, all-around jack-of-all-trades, who brings this to you. Um, so thank you for joining me to listen in on my uh, story, very interesting, weird story, about... Um, strange happenings in 22nd century Boston. Uh, If you're a regular listener, you may notice uh, it was a little bit of time between these two episodes. Um, And the reason for that is my mother passed away on April 24th, 2019, if you're listening to this in the future. Um, And so I took some time off to celebrate uh, and mourn and grieve a very wonderful lady. Um, among other things, my mother, I'm going to take some time, obviously, now to just say some things about my mom. Among other things, my mother um, supported and encouraged her weird little third son, uh, who's not terribly little, actually, um, in his endeavors, which included his love of science fiction and writing and things like that. Um, she was a graduate of Pembroke College at Brown University, and uh, she was a damn smart lady, and she loved the written word, and even though we had perhaps very different tastes, very different tastes, no perhaps about it, in music, uh, well, not sorry, not music, but in writing, actually it wasn't music too, although we liked some of the same things. Anyway, she still supported me, and uh, I'm forever grateful for that. Uh, I take some comfort in uh, knowing that she um, she loved the written word and um, in her last weeks and months loved to hear poetry and um, she's a great woman I miss her dearly so this is dedicated to my mother Gretchen and uh, I apologize for the swearing mom but you know gotta write what you love and what you know right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, yes, they're swearing. Don't play it around kids or the impressionable or people who get upset by simple, easy things. And, uh, oh boy, chapter 18. Um, we are down to the last couple chapters, folks. Two more after this, concluding the tale of tribal malfunctions. So, hey, let's just kick it, shall we?
Prologue 18, The High Cost of Rising Tides. This used to be free and clear, says the old man, pointing out to the bay in front of him. A high wind off the ocean blows the dark green water into white caps like chipped jade. You could go right down to the water there, and there were still houses. I'm confused for a moment because this area of Portland, Maine, has been a park since the early 20th century when Governor Percival Baxter donated it to the state. There have been no houses along this part of the Eastern Promenade since back in the early 1920s when a small Hooverville encampment rose up near where the sewage treatment plant now stands. Then I realize he's pointing at Peaks Island across the harbor where houses once stood where a section of the Casco Bay containment wall now stands. When the walls came up here, hell, it might have been like this all across the east and west coast for all I know. You saw a ton of houses where the owners tried to keep them standing. Built these crappy walls, but it didn't do a bit of good. The ocean took them all, eventually. I asked the man what it was like growing up then. Well, it was nice until it stopped snowing for a few winters and the summers got too hot, he says, sniffing a little in the cold wind. If it weren't for the worm way, all the genetically modified trees and those microbes that ate plastic and cleaned up the ocean, we'd be triple fucked. As he stops again to reflect, his eyes grow damp. His tears begin to stream down his face. I ask what's wrong. I just wish my grandfather could see it, he says. Again, I misinterpret the man's words until he goes on. He'd get a little drunk and cry, worrying that the world he lived in was something my mother and my brothers and sisters would never see. But he believed they doomed us, kinda. I just wish he could have seen it get better. I think his last years would have been a lot easier. Excerpt from Children of the Warming World, a polluted generation growing older in their own words. By Terry and Gwyn, 2102, Dorigo International Press. Chapter 18, Partial Control. From a safe distance, Aris watched the DHS vehicles appear over the course of an hour and a half. First, there were lights in the sky, he thought maybe satellites, but as they grew and assumed a formation, he realized it was the cavalry coming to the rescue. But too late. He zoomed in with his shades to watch as less than a minute later, seven copters hovered over the Wormway exit point, lights blazing down on the ground below. As they descended, their prop wash blasted the snow away in flying sheets and chunks. At least his footprints at the scene were scrubbed out for a couple hundred feet. When the choppers landed, their side doors opened and dozens of DHS agents jumped out, guns aloft. They swarmed around the area, securing the perimeter as a number of them descended into the wormway from where Aris had exited. Several vehicles arrived minutes later, roaring over the ice and snow to come to a stop at the scene. More agents emerged and got to work, their drones pitching the command tent, while others set about examining the immediate area. Aris watched as a truck wound its way down the road towards the abandoned service station where he hid inside the office behind an old metal oil drum. Soon he heard the sound of the van's motor whining in the dark, then saw its headlights illuminating the unplowed road. As it bumped closer, Aris crouched down. He watched it briefly veer towards the Wormway Tower, back towards the gas station, wondering if it were Cho's men driving it. But they couldn't possibly know he was here. Then again, he realized he didn't really know what they knew. The van came to a stop outside the service station. A searchlight flicked on and played over the building. 
As it flashed against the side of the van, Aris saw the image of a fish above the words, Swampskit Fish Market, Fresher is Better. Finally, the light went off and a bulky figure stepped out. Yo, Future Pop, said Nine Nines in a harsh whisper. You hear? Jesus Christ, said Aris, creeping out of the office. Subtle as a brick. Shit, man, said Nine Nines. You scared the crap out of me. Were you followed here? said Aris. There's a fucking shitload of cops nearby, if you didn't happen to notice. Nah, said Nine Nines. Switch trucks twice at a couple safe spots. No one around either time. Everyone jumpy as fuck, but no one following us. Come on. Where the fuck are we? said Aris. Rentham, said Nine Nines. Ugh, nothing good ever comes from Rentham. Get me out of here. Nine Knives waved Aris into the back of the van, where Aris found Wendell waiting. How you doing, he said, handing Aris a Kelly's roast beef bag. Been better for sure, said Aris, taking a seat opposite his friend. He's in, said Nine Knives, closing the door. Let's get moving. They left the secluded spot and wound their way towards the highway on-ramp in Franklin, one town southwest. Aris briefed Wendell on the ambush. Shit, said Wendell, when he'd finish. I'm sorry, man. We gotta act now, Wendell, said Aris. Not just because they got my sister. She confirmed Cho's gearing up to do something soon. All those explosives down there are enough to get me moving, said Wendell. What's your plan? I don't know, said Aris. Gotta find Cho first. Put a stop to this. Find a way to deactivate the bombs down there. Make sure Yuki's family gets out. Yeah, I don't know, boss, said Wendell. Ain't like we got a big team. That's a couple different fronts you're talking about. This ain't the Allies at Normandy or something. Then I'm gonna have to make some calls, said Aris. See if we can get help with this. Think you can pull a crew together from KRBK? Wendell shrugged. Shit, I don't know, he said. Maybe I... Fisher cut bait, Wendell, said Aris. For your father, your brother. Shit, how about for your kids, your husband? Because this fucking city is about to get turned into a little SoCo or Free Canada outpost if we don't act fast. Wendell nodded. Sorry, man. I'm in, he said. He drew out his phone and dialed. Aris did the same. Yeah, said Tiny Town. It's Aris. This phone secure? Like my dick in my hand, said Tiny Town. You get out? Yeah, said Aris. But shit went from bad to worse. We gotta act fast. What's up? said Tiny Town. Aris repeated the full rundown despite tiring of hearing himself tell it again and again. He knew he needed to include the most important details, for his sister's sake at least. I figured it was coming to this, said Tiny Town. Okay, look at here. Uh, I can get a posse together. Some of the old guys will even come if they hear it's a chance to get back at NYC. But we ain't gonna battle like the old days because they're gonna be armed with all that free Canada and so-called shit. If it's gonna be a battle, then we gotta come correct. Know anyone with uh, access to an armory or uh, are a stopped knowing what answer was about to come? Sure I do, said Tiny Town. Only problem is the guy's buried under a couple thousand tons of old Brooktown warehouse. Shit. Sorry, said Aris. Yo, you got that big-ass faker, though, right? Said Tiny Town. Yeah, said Aris. Can't print guns or gun parts on that. Dust to Dust monitors the link. It's a federal offense if they see me try to download something, and... Aris stopped in mid-sentence as Wendell squinted at Aris, then shrugged. What? Said Tiny Town. You still there? Yeah, said Aris. Still here. I think I got an idea. Look, 
Get as many guys as you can down to my garage as soon as possible. Tell them to come in civilian clothes, but pack for war. I think I might be able to get something to put in their hands. You got it, said Tiny Town. But you, future pop. Uh, yeah, said Aris. While unused to hearing his old name, he still felt a thrill from it. Kinda good to be strategizing, you know. Yeah, kinda, said Aris. Later. Later. He hung up, then called Yuki. Man, shit is blowing up, she said after the first ring. You okay? Aris told her about the events in the tunnel. I'm sorry about your sister. Sadly, it's not surprising, she said. He started in on me a few hours ago. He's high as fuck on KK and wine, raving about the time is nigh and it's gonna be his baby tomorrow. I don't know what the fuck is happening. Asked him about my parents and he... What did he say, said Aris. He said they're gonna be coming home if things go all right, said Yuki. He said they're someplace safe with friends of his. He say where, said Aris. Of course not, she replied. I heard his driver say something about South Station. Then Cho said, no, Chinatown first so I can get some more KK. Then we go there. He said I better be good. Then he hung up. Aris thought for a moment. No warm way near New York's Chinatown, though. Nope, said Yuki. Either he's bullshitting or... Hold up a second, said Aris. Boston's old Chinatown is near the Wormway Environment Building. South Station's right next to it. I bet they're meeting up there. You think so? Said Yuki. Yeah, it's where I saw Cho's people a while back, remember? Said Aris. That NYC crew. Yeah, said Yuki. That's a good place to be if you're going to hijack the Wormway, you know? Got controls for the vacuum systems, plus all the coolant is processed there. Shut it down, and you fuck shit up all the way to the next facility, which is probably in Rhode Island or Connecticut. Perfect place for a takeover. Probably got a bunch of SoCo and Free Canadians in there. And a bunch of his crew. With all those weapons and explosives, my money says that's the spot where this is going to go down. Sounds like it, said Yuki. Plus, he took the Boston Massive down right there 15 years ago, said Aris. Motherfucker does like his own personal history, said Yuki. Especially an anniversary. He'd make it a monument to his fat ass. Okay. So you're going to save my family, Aris? I hope so, he replied. I'm pulling together a crew. If we're going to go after them, I need a lot of guns. A couple hundred at least. Especially since we know they'll have a shitload of weapons there. How are you going to get that many guns in a short time? Well, I've got an industrial-grade dust-to-dust faker in my garage. Okay, said Yuki. And? Well, you think you can work your magic, said Aris? Get some plans from the Nets, hack the faker too. Those things have top-end encryption, said Yuki. Kind of thing takes a couple of days. Come on, said Aris. You're telling me a dust-to-dust faker is going to stop you? Don't want to see your family at... Hey, fuck you, man, said Yuki. You can go fucking suck it. Look, I'm sorry, Yuki. I... You know what? Fine, you win. I'm going to break out a couple of my nuclear options. It's as good a time as any. Just call me when you get to your shop. I got some shit to do. Sorry, kid, said Aris. I just... It's fine, said Yuki. But seriously, fuck you. Yuki hung up. Wendell was still conversing in a Creole dialect on the phone. Hunger suddenly flooded Aris's brain, so he ate some fries and half a roast beef sandwich while he waited. Wendell finished up and sighed, leaning back into the van's wall. So, what you get, said Aris. The barons are holding an emergency meeting. We should be able to pull together a big posse. How'd you do? 
good, he said around a mouthful of sandwich. Shit's getting lined up. All right, said Wendell, nodding and looking ahead at the road. What's it like up there, big men, said ours. Bad, said Nine Knives. Stadies are all over the place. Word is they're setting up roadblocks in Boston. You got a plan, said ours. Stick to side roads, said Nine Knives. We're still outside MBPD jurisdiction. Once we hit 95, we're in their territory. Do that then, said ours. Take Route 9, then Route 16. You think this is my first dodge from them, said Nine Knives. Nah, man, Ars said, then laughed. I gotta say, you're surprising me. I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, said Wendell. And I just thought you were some fat fuck in a suit. Nine Knives laughed and gave him the finger. When Ars finished his sandwich, he wiped his mouth and dialed his phone. After three rings, someone picked up. Hello? Said Manea. Hi, baby, said Ars. Hey, she replied. What time is it? 4 a.m. here. What time is it there? Two-ish, said Manea. Just got done with lunch and was taking a nap. Sounds good. Yeah, it was, said Manea. He heard the sleep in her voice and imagined her scent, drowsy and warm. Why are you up so early? You okay? Yeah, Aris replied. Yeah, I'm actually... Actually, I miss you. Oh, sweetie, she replied. So sweet. Yeah, I miss you so much. I wish you'd bring me something back from the old country. There was a moment's pause before Manea spoke. Oh, yeah, that, she said. Well, I knew you'd miss me, so I sent something already. You what? said Aris. You did? Yep, said Manea. When? said Aris. Well, you ought to be seeing it uh, any minute now, said Manea. Sent it off yesterday. You did? Yeah, she replied. I knew you'd need it, since you miss me and all. Son of a... Like I said, it's powerful stuff, so use it right and don't let it go to waste. I won't, said Horace. Uh, I guess I'll let you get back to your nap then. Okay, she said. Uh, Aris? Yeah, babe. Be safe, okay? She said. Like kittens, he replied. I hate cats, she said. Seriously. I promise I'll stay safe, he replied. Okay, my love. Manea hung up. Aris watched as signs for the city of Boston appeared holographically in the road ahead of them and held his breath at every police cruiser that sped by. They arrived back at the garage well after midnight. Once inside the Interstate 95 ring, the police presence amplified. Aris caught glimpses of flashing lights and police blockades manned by wary officers in riot gear. They listened to police band scanners for any idea of what was going on in the city. Police were under an alert for unspecified and suspicious activity. There was talk of a heightened state police presence. On the radio, the late-night DJs said there were reports of gas main leaks and an armed police drill. They're covering, said Aris. Don't want people to know the MBPD's scared. They know something's up with the stadies. Wendell nodded. At the garage, they circled once before pulling in at the front gate, closed and locked it behind them, then stowed the van in the yard. Stepping out, Aris looked into the sky as if expecting Wunski's great eye to be spying down upon them. He remembered Yuki's nuclear options and what those might be. Inside the garage, Wendell turned on the office lights. Aris turned them off immediately. Keep it dark, he said. 
only garage lights. Things are going to be weird enough with a couple hundred folks rolling up. Anyone thinks we're doing something fishy, then we're fucked. Got it, said Wendell. He flipped a switch outside the office door, and the garage lights flicked on in a row until it was lit from end to end. They looked out on the quiet space. Any idea what we're going to do? No fucking clue, said Aris. This is bigger than any battle I ever did. Me too, said Wendell. Good thing I got veterans coming. I thought you were a veteran, said Aris. Me? said Wendell. He shook his head. I've seen stuff, but nothing like my dad and brother. Don't worry. We got the Globe Elan coming down. I hope so, said Aris. Honestly, I don't know how the fuck we're going to do this. We got to get a couple hundred guys in there. A bus or a coach is going to be all kinds of obvious. What about a hauler, said Wendell. Really? Aris replied. You got one spare? Better yet, four? No, said Wendell. But you got a whole fucking yard full of chassis, parts, and frames. Enough for three or four out there, easily. You may be right, said Aris. How long to patch them together? Eight hours, said Wendell. Get the faker cooking and we can... That sucker's going to be making a fuck ton of guns, said Aris. Wendell rolled his eyes. Now better get started then. He trotted down the stairs, then ran to the back of the garage for the door to the yard. Nine knives appeared and called to Aris. Your Aris, he said. The old papa's here. Thanks, said Aris. He came down the stairs and stopped a step above the boy. And it's time you called me Future Pop again. You got it, Future Pop, said Nine Knives. They each signed for power and strength, then Aris followed him out to the main gate. A blue van with a manga knight painted on the side was pulling in as Tai Tai closed it up. Aris approached as the side door slid open. You ready for this? said Tiny Town. His wheelchair rolled out of the van on a series of smart wheels, thousands of spokes giving him perfect traction. This is going to be so much bigger and better than the big Batel. Yeah, said Aris, shaking his head. This time I think we got the drop. Hope so, said Tiny Town. Sure as shit got the crew. He drew a small flat device from a pocket and flicked a tiny switch on the side. Three short needles popped out one end as a tiny blue light went on. You gonna need something to help you stay on top of shit? Nah, said Aris, holding up his hand. I think adrenaline and coffee will be fine. Suit yourself, said Tiny Town. He pulled his collar back, tapped his skin hard just into the chin, then jabbed the device into his folds. He grunted, then shook his head. His hand dropped down for a moment, and he appeared to go to sleep. Then his body shook once, and he sat up straight. Damn, I miss that shit. Surprised you still got a heart and veins, said Aris. Got some fucking balls, too, said Tiny Town. He looked at the gate as five men approached. As Tai Tai opened the gate, they walked in and stopped at Tiny Town's van. You called, said one of them, addressing Tiny Town. He looked at Aris for a moment. You future pop? Yeah, said Aris. Who are you? Core Crush, the man replied. Gluster massive. Been laying low, but I remember you from a party back in the day. They shook, and Core Crush looked at Tiny Town. This a reunion, huh? Ain't no sign of yearbooks to see you next summer, said Tiny Town. Got some serious shit to do. I hear that, said Core Crush. Put us to work then. Tiny Town looked at Aris. Stow your gear inside, out of the way, he said. Then go around back. Look for a black guy back there named Wendell. I'll tell him you're coming. Do exactly as he says. Understood, said Core Crush. He nodded to the others, and they followed him inside. You the boss here, said Tiny Town. They come in and you tell them what to do. 
but you're the all-papa, said Oris. I'm here to make sure they know this shit is real, said Tiny Town. The real down-a-heavy deal. Got it, said Oris. It went like this for a few hours. Groups of two or more streamed in, made their greetings, paid homage to Tiny Town, then Oris put them to work. At 5 a.m., the sky was changing color when he realized the garage was due to open soon. He ran to the office, then sent out an automatic message to all employees that Holy Roller was closed due to a gas leak. He also notified the Wormway Central Office any haulers would have to be temporarily rerouted. At 7 a.m., Aris was about to head in for some coffee when two figures approached the gate. He squinted, not sure which crew they might be. Then he recognized them. Adam and Chorus walked up as if they worked at the garage and it was just another day. Both men smoked, conversing in a harsh way as they stepped up to Aris. Their clothes were clean but rough, as if they'd been briefed to show up and get ready to get dirty. You are Mr. A, one asked as they entered the gate. Aris was confused for a moment, then realized what they meant. Yeah, he said. Guess I am. Just not the one you remember. Yes. Old Mr. A was good man, he said. I'm Chorus. This is Adam. Adam nodded. Aris shook their hands, surprised at the warmth despite their lack of gloves. So where is problem? asked Chorus. We will go to fix. Uh, it's kind of complex. Complex, said Chorus. He said something to Adam in Armenian. Adam shrugged. What is problem? We fix for you. We're... Aris found some fatigue tying up his words. We're getting ready for a battle. Okay, said Adam. We can do battle. Show us what to do. Chorus nodded. You guys still know haulers? asked Aris. Yes, said Chorus. Know them well. Service ones in Yerevan come through Iran and Turkey. Good, Aris replied. Get around back and look for Wendell. Wendell? said Adam. Yes, Wendell, said Aris. We know Wendell, said Chorus. Good man. We find Wendell. By 7 a.m., Aris and Tinytown were about to go inside. Aris checked the gate as a beaten sedan pulled up. He clapped his hand to his pocket, but realized he hadn't brought a gun. A dark man stepped out of the passenger side as the back doors opened up. Aris recognized Wendell's brother, Jean-Paul. Aris, he said. Bought some help. Morning, said Aris. Is this it? Morning, said Aris, pointing at the car. Is this it? Please, said Jean-Paul. We got a lot more coming. Good, said Aris. But aren't you supposed to be in Miami? I was supposed to be at a mine farm dreaming while they use my mind for security at someone's bungalow, said Jean-Paul. But the Grobel sent word Wendell needed as many wartime pros as he could get. A friend had a spot on his jet. Good friend to have, said Aris. Think you can man the gate while I see what's up inside? Your people might be more comfortable if they see a friendly face. You mean a brown face? said Jean-Paul. Aris shrugged. Jean-Paul laughed. No problem. We've got a lot of people coming. Good, said Aris. He went inside to his office. Inside the garage, there were three separate haulers being rebuilt. A hundred heavy boys crawled over them, some with welding guns, their shades reflecting the bright sparks as they worked. Others were consulting with Wendell, who ran from bay to bay, advising. He caught Adam and Chorus working, occasionally shouting in broken English, then pointing to a part of the frame. He was surprised how proud this scene made him of his garage. At 1 p.m., they stopped for lunch, brought in by Wendell's cousins. The men devoured the island cuisine. 
goat, rice, and grilled vegetables thrown together in huge bowls for their first break since they'd arrived. They'd worked hard with surprisingly few problems integrating, no small feat considering that on the streets they were mortal enemies. Aris watched them eating and wondered who among them had injured or killed a relative of the other. Knowing everyone benefited from uniting against a common enemy made them work with incredible cohesion. From their labor rose three workable haulers. They'd need full inspections and some adjustments if they were going into regular service, but for now they needed to be able to make a single round trip with holds full of armed humans. So Aris had Wendell and Chorus make sure they made the cargo areas airtight and the hidden air supplies shielded from attack they might encounter in the wormway. Aris banished the worry about how they would get in until later. Being prepared was more than half the battle and would definitely determine the outcome of the war. Then his phone rang. Hey, he said. Hey yourself, Yugi replied. What's the situation? Very busy, said Aris. You? Oof, said Yuki. All I know is that if this doesn't work, I'm fucked because I used up all my favors for this. Yeah, said Aris. Same here. Kind of got all my ducks in uh, one basket. <laughs> you got your what and a what, Aunt Tilly? Said Yuki. <laughs> Never mind. So you got a plan to get in there? More or less, said Aris. Just need some way to protect ourselves. I got that covered, said Yuki. Been working with Tiny Town's boy, Skip Trace. He and I worked it out. He called a friend who works at Triple Control Systems. Got us some time on a super server down in Buenos Aires. Broke the dust-to-dust -dust encryption in no time. Nice, said Aris. So where are my guns? <laughs> it's not that easy, said Yuki. Gotta time it right, because this is a one-shot deal. This package zaps your printer's brain and stuns the encryption. That gets the plans in past it and starts printing right after that. The program can only fake as much as it can until you get a call from their home office. They'll send a guy out when they can't remotely access the printer. Jesus, that sounds risky, said Aris. Can't you just wipe it or... Hey, don't blame me, said Yuki. Blame the fucks who made it illegal to print gun parts over a hundred years ago. This package will wipe itself and the machine out when it's done. Your repair guy's gonna find a completely brick faker. Make up some story. Tell him someone spilled coffee on it. That's gonna be a big fucking brick, said Aris. So when can I print some guns? As soon as you tell me what you want, said Yuki. What? I don't know from guns, said Aris. Shit, I hadn't thought of that. If it were me, said Yuki, I'd go for something without bullets that's safe to use in a vacuum or vacuum environment. No kidding, said Aris. Are you a gunsmith? No, said Yuki. But I know what you're up against. Shit, I might just make crossbows just to be safe. Something that doesn't use projectiles, said Aris. Hmm. Jesus, I don't know. Do you trust me? said Yuki. You? said Aris. Yeah, I guess I do. You fucking guess? Now you fucking guess? Do you trust me? Jesus, Yuki, Aris replied. Of course I trust you. Then in about an hour, I want you standing right next to the faker. She hung up. Aris finished his lunch, watching the men at work. Aris remembered the story of how some heavy boys tried to print guns with a small industrial faker they stole and smuggled away to an abandoned building near Jamaica Plain. They connected it to a pirated phone to download a set of plans from a dark site. Their logic was this. 
With the printer's nanny circuit removed, it would therefore prevent, if not at least delay, the cops from locating them, allowing the birth of untraceable guns. They were fairly certain that by the time the weapons were assembled, they'd be long gone before cops showed up. Apparently, as their all-papa recounted from the police report, they were watching the faker scratch out a firing pin when cops kicked in the door, sprayed them with mace jelly nets before hauling them off for a 15-year stay in a chem pen off of Lynn. He thought of this as he stood by the faker when Yugi took it over. At exactly 2 p.m., for a second, the screen showed the Dust to Dust logo, then flickered. After going blank for a few more seconds, it turned vivid blue. A few blips, lines of code, then it began to download a new program. Estimated time to completion, 4 hours, 38 minutes, and 27 seconds, said the faker's pleasant female voice. Then the faker began to form gun parts with its lasers and extruder. Aris hoped Yuki was as good as her word. He'd seen her work and trusted her to know how safe her sources were, but it would be for nothing if the cops busted in before they were done. The three custom haulers sat in their bays, painted, cleaned, and ready. The men around them were restless, despite being at work for almost 12 hours. It was only a matter of time before they lost steam and ran the risk of getting sloppy. Aris put fingers to his mouth and whistled, wincing at the taste of machine grease on his fingertips. He kept at it, waving them over with his other hand until they were all assembled before him. Wendell stood to one side with some KRBK men, while Tiny Town and a group of other heavy boys stood to the other. Though Aris saw a clear division between them, he was pleasantly surprised to see some mixing. Look, this ain't gonna be a big rah-rah speech where I tell you something grand like in a movie. Some of them laughed while others booed. I just want to say I'm amazed you came out. Never thought I'd see K or BK standing next to heavy boys and neither were pulling a knife or putting it in someone else. Thanks for not killing each other. More laughter. Ara saw Wendell mime a stabbing motion at him. No, I mean it. I guess you all know the stakes we're facing. The shit we're up against is real. And it's bigger than all of us. Bigger than anything any of us ever gone up against, you know? Heads nodded. Faces grew serious and solemn. I know some of you were at the Big Battelle. Others came up later. Either way, you know that went unavenged. Until today. Cheers rose up, and both gangs started in on their signature rallying cries. Ara smiled for a second, then silenced them with a hand. Seriously, this is it. Nothing else matters. We're not doing this for K or BK or for heavy boys, he said, looking out at the faces before him, some brown and some lighter with their shades on. We're doing this for our city, our families, and maybe even the whole country, because we all got families, right? Right? Nods and voices called out in the affirmative. Because what Cho is planning to do with those SoCo and free Canadian bastards will be a disaster. And Boston's got a bad enough rep without some NYC fucker messing it up. Am I right? They alternated cheering with booing at the NYC reference. So keep cool and get some rest while the faker is cooking up some guns, said Arnas. He jerked his thumb back and they cheered louder. Because I don't know when we're going to get a better chance to rest. All I know is we are some of the toughest motherfuckers in Boston, and I want to show those NYC assholes whose town it is. This time he let their cheers run long and loud until his ears hurt from the din of their voices filling the room all the way up to the ceiling's outer darkness. Wendell and Tiny Town, get over here. We got a plan to hatch. More them ducks, said Tiny Town. <laughs> More ducks, Aris said, grinning. 
At dusk, someone woke Aris up from a nap with a few rough shakes. He startled for a moment, then saw his feet propped on his desk. Then he saw Wendell smiling at him. Your boy Tiny Town's got some folks he wants you to meet, he said. Aris rubbed his eyes, then followed Wendell out to the floor. Tiny Town sat talking with a dozen women wearing an array of cuts and colors. Tiny Town swiveled in his chair and smiled at Aris. I brought in a women's auxiliary action committee, he said. A dark-haired girl in a puffy orange jacket, black leggings, and high-top sneakers scowled at him. Fuck you, you fat fuck, she said. Aris liked her immediately. Show you what the tiger doubles are made of. Tiny Town laughed as she drew a katana from a scabbard slung on her back. The black blade shimmered, blue vapor rising from it. She swung it down, then executed a deft series of moves. The blade transfixed Aris. He was amazed how she managed to move so smoothly, despite a pair of thick cables dangling from the sword's butt end to a pack on her back under the scabbard. When she finished, she swung it overhead, then returned it to the scabbard, as if itching to scratch. Impressive, right? said Tiny Town. But everyone knows chicks love to dance. The girl stepped forward and gently flicked a spot on Tiny Town's thigh. The carbon-weave fabric slid away, revealing a very shallow wound. At first it looked like just a graze before it began to brighten and bleed. The fuck, Becky? said Tiny Town. You only did that because my legs are dead. The girl smiled. How you go by, said Aris. Alpha Becky, said the girl, maybe 18 at the oldest. Tiger doubles, hail out of Brighton. Nice blade, said Aris. Cold beam steel, she said. Nitrogen filament keeps it frosty. 20,000 volts keeps it clean. Cuts through just about anything. Flesh is cold cauterized for a few seconds and deadens the nerves. Suckers won't know they're bleeding for 30 seconds to a minute. No jolt, though, said Aris. Nah, not on him, said Alpha Becky. Tiny Town's a friend. Tiny Town, pressing a cloth to his knee, grumbled. What's your beef in this, said Aris. NYC Heavy Boy's been bugging our girls. Pinched a few of them over the months. Alpha Becky's voice hardened. We found their bodies not long after. Those were the lucky ones. A couple of work in their club's circuit, without consent or pay. I'm sorry, Aris replied. And welcome. Glad to have you. Those swords will come in handy. Especially when we cut off all their dicks, one girl said. Alpha Becky scowled and rolled her eyes. Dotty, she muttered. Gross. What about you, Aris said, pointing to a quartet of quiet girls on the other side. Each wore aquamarine hoodies with painted animal caricatures, sleeves covered in elaborate, tattooed-style rabbits. At the elbow, enormous mechanical arms and brushed black and red metal devoured their sleeves. Their leggings, covered in gang cigs, slipped into tall maroon boots. Bunny hops, said one. Roxbury Mattapan Massive. Name's Lisa, too. Where's Lisa 1? asked Wendell. She's dead, asshole, the girl replied. Killed by state cops. She was my cousin. I don't want dicks. I want crushed skulls. She lifted her arms overhead. The left hand ended in five long fingers with multiple joints, which she wiggled and waved slowly, then clacked together. The right hand was a pair of pincers she grabbed the air with, eliciting sparks from the tips. Whatever you need, said Aris, as long as you keep that shit away from me. Lisa too nodded and stepped back among her crew. 
These are some old school angelic backups, said Tiny Town. Five women appeared from behind him, wearing matching white hoodies, identically decorated in black cartoonish skulls on the front, with a card suit underneath. The tops bore black circles like horns at certain angles. While one shoulder was undecorated, the other was decked in half-inch black spikes. Each girl wore black leggings like the bunny hops and high-top A-dads with magenta laces that matched hair spilling perfectly from their hoods, framing their faces. Each wore makeup of pale white skin with a small club or diamond by one eye. Aris nodded at the woman in the center. We've met, said Aris. What's your name? Farah Terminata, she replied. Brookline Massive. I remember you. You used to run with Major Blood. Guy grew amazing weed, right? You been laying low all these years? said Aris. She shrugged. Kinda. Went to MIT. Picked up a few degrees. Learned a few things. She cocked her hip, raised one arm above her head, and bent the elbow. Black skeletal fingers emerged to form a hand shaped into a V for victory. Then she pulled up her other sleeve to reveal another black metallic arm ending in rapier-sharp fingertips. Cool, said Aris. Deadly, too, I bet. You bet right, said Farrah Terminata. NYC heavy boys kidnapped me one night when I was walking home from my lab. He and his buddies cut my arms off after toying with me for a while. Bastard, said Aris. She merely nodded. At the hospital, the cops said there was a jurisdictional issue that it'd take a while to solve, said the girl. She admired the limbs as if they were a sculpture she'd just come upon. While they were waiting for their coffee to cool, I got fitted with some welfare-ass prosthetics which sucked, so I switched majors to robotics and built these. Impressive, said Aris. You use those for work? Hell no, said Ferret Terminata. These are for play. I got another set with skin and everything. Never tell the difference. Gives great hand jobs, said one of her crew. The last a guy I'll ever have, but one he'll never forget. I'm glad I'm married, said Aris. Ferret Terminata nodded. Aris looked at Tiny Town. You brief them on the situation? Just about to, said Tiny Town. Be quick, said Aris. He looked at his watch. It's time to get moving. Where are we going, said Alpha Becky. We're T's building, said Aris. He clapped Tiny Town's shoulder and walked over to the faker. The guns were nearly complete. Adam was overseeing the process, assigning assembly tasks to a group of heavy boys and KRBK men. Aris nodded as he approached, then examined a completed weapon on the table. It was lighter than he expected, with a wide barrel, fully three inches across and almost two feet long. The magazines were bulky rectangles that clipped to the gun's side. What is it fire? he asked. Adam handed him a thin, five-inch metal cylinder. He smiled, revealing silver teeth as bright as the newly forged alloy in Aris's hand. The round ended in a fat, blunt tip, resembling an old garbage can Aris had seen in an antique store. What's in it? This is whole round, said Adam. Gun use air. Pump very hard, very fast. Puck, puck, puck. Fire hot, round very fast. Rounds reusable, very recyclable? Aris nodded. Adam smiled with all his silver teeth. Pack hard punch, said Adam. Get the fucks where they sit. He slapped his own behind, and Aris laughed as his phone rang. Hey, he answered. You need to get moving, Yuki said. We're ready, said Aris. Okay, Yuki replied. Now it's a little more complicated, though. 
What? said Aris. Why? What do you mean? Fucker told me I'd see my family soon. So? said Aris. Well, I don't know what's going on exactly, said Yuki. But he's sending a limo to get me. Said my doctor will be in there. Fuck, said Aris. So what's that do to our plan? Stick to it, said Yuki. He's not going to abandon it. Get in there and stop whatever's happening. I'll keep in touch. How, said Aris. I mean, if he's got you. He's up to his eyes on KK, she said. Won't be able to tell shit. I can handle his boys. You just keep your phone on. I hope this works, said Aris. We're a couple hundred deep and armed to the teeth. A lot could go really, really wrong. Yep, said Yuki. I'll make sure they don't see you coming. You better, said Aris. Well, pack your shit and get moving, she said. This is it. Yuki hung up. Aris looked around and caught Wendell's eye. Wendell nodded back and began shouting to the KRBKs near him. Aris turned to find Tiny Town organizing the heavy boys. All right, shouted Aris. Let's do this. He grabbed a gun and joined everyone as they climbed into the hallways. As the hauler hit a bump, Aris did his best not to fall into the woman next to him. He was packed into the last hauler with half the heavy boys and all the angels. Wendell's K or BK were in another with the double tigers, while Tiny Town was in the third with some heavy boys and the bunny hops. Aris tried to convince Tiny Town to stay back, but he refused. You think it's gonna be too rough for me, my chair? You prejudiced motherfucker. Nah, B, said Aris, as they piled onto the hallways. I just think that, oh, you think I'm going to sit back while y'all go at them, motherfucker? He said, adjusting the bandage around his knee under his fat suit. Think again, beige. Well, you've been John, solid fucking citizen. I've been keeping it real on the underground. I'm not some old pensious sucking dude waiting for my check, got it? I'm fucking heavy and hard. I won't think twice if I got to show a bitch that's the case. You feel me? Aris knew better than to fight Tiny Town and let him lead up the third hauler. He found it strange being in a heavy boy rumble crew. As he donned his stealth suit and clipped on the tactical knife, Aris watched with some nostalgia as the others got dressed. They unpacked suits neatly folded away in duffels or special cases with care and put them on with careful precision. It was like a coronation would be taking place. Once suited, they entered the haulers in a rowdy but orderly fashion. Someone shouted a newer fight song with similar themes to those he'd sung back in the day. Aris followed along as best he could. Now the haulers were underway, their journey almost over. Heavy boys and angels traded fight songs and barbs. Each laughed and watched the other like exotic animals. Aris realized a lot of the younger ones who came up after the Big Battelle never had a full contingent of angels backing them up, and definitely no trader angels like Baby G. Aris perused data Yuki sent via his shades, the Route 2 and Blueprints for the Ortiz building. The plan was to get to the loading dock via surface roads. Once at the dock, Yuki would open the doors, allowing the haulers inside. From there, they'd emerge and fight their way to the control center, securing it. Aris wondered what kind of security they'd find. That was information Yuki couldn't provide him with. There's either going to be a bunch of NYC heavy boys and Cho, or that, plus a bunch of SoCo and free Canadian people. No idea. It might just be Cho and a small group of his guys, she said as he looked over the plans. 
might be a party. So either a bloodbath or a cakewalk? Pretty much, said Yuki. Dreamy, huh? Not really, said Aris. Whatever. They're not expecting you, she said. I can pretty much guarantee that. He wants to show off to all his fucking cronies when he makes his announcement. That'd be his style. Yeah, I hope you're right, said Aris. When he felt the hauler slow down, he opened a feed on the camera they'd installed in its nose. Along the route were numerous cop cars, lights flashing as they hovered above the city's streets, crowds of cops standing below them. Their convoy passed these without incident, a trio of haulers off on a night delivery. Now the feed showed flashing red stoplights passing and the Ortiz building looming ahead. Almost there. Lucky you, said Yuki. I'm locked up in a guest room in Cho's mansion with nothing to eat or drink. Where are you? asked Aris. Upstate New York, she replied. Maybe Rhinebeck or Socrates? Any word on your family? he asked. None, she said. Man, I'm thirsty. Must have been something the doc gave me. Hang in there, said Aris. I'll buy you a drink on the other side. You better, she said, then hung up. In another minute, they felt a bump as the hauler shifted direction, then slowed. All right, Aris said. This is it. We're going in. Standard plan. Once inside, we blow the bolts and take out whoever's there. If you got a wall up, then do it. Bravo team has their codes. Most deaf. Charlie team's got theirs. You know it. You're holding down the place while we strike them. I wish I could tell you how many we're dealing with out here, but it could be a dozen or two hundred. Copy that, said Wendell. Ready for it, said Tiny Town. Aris watched the hauler approaching the loading docks. Once inside, they'd be slotted into cages that would open into the middle of the Ortiz building. Just about there, said Aris. He felt the hauler slowly stop. No one spoke or breathed loud, lest they not hear something outside the haulers or tip off anyone to their presence. A pair of heavy boys sauntered up, assault rifles cradled under their arms. Yuki, Aris subvocalized. I've got two of Cho's guys here. Oh yeah? She replied. I've got news for you. There's probably a couple hundred more inside. Cut it, he said. What do I do? Come out blasting, she replied. You're really useless. Hardly, but good luck. The fuck are these? One of the NYC heavies outside the hauler said. Dunno, said the other. Boss didn't say we were expecting anything, said the first. Future Pop, said Tiny Town. What's the protocol here? You ready? Aris replied. Need to move fast. Homeland Services will be on their way as soon as an alarm trips. Wendell and Tiny Town pinged him back. They were ready. Blow the doors, said Aris. Explosive bolts detonated and the doors fell away. Aris heard the two NYC boys scream. Everyone in the hauler tensed, raising their weapons. The angels' fighting stances had a grace that almost made Aris cry as Tai Tai hit the emergency door switch. Go, Aris shouted. As everyone exited the hallways, Aris hung back to make careful note of the space. The building's interior was simple and utilitarian. The docks where they stood had military crates stacked nearby. Tracks led from the hallway cages towards a huge elevator that descended into the wormway. A pair of catwalks on either wall led up into the control center. Between them, a mural was painted, Ortiz Control Center, Boston, MA, in huge letters, below the face of a dark-skinned, smiling man in a baseball uniform. One of the NYC heavies rose up, drawing his weapon on Aris. Farah Terminata slunk up behind him, then pressed the talon into the largest of his chins. He made a choking sound and dropped his rifle. The other stayed on the floor, his hands up. 
Aris wondered if the scent of urine in the air was fresh from them or older. He turned his head towards the banner, hearing a metallic clang. Doors on either side of the mural opened as dozens of NYC heavy boys streamed out. They crowded the catwalk, each armed with rifles similar to the ones the pair had dropped at Aris' feet. Tell them to drop their weapons, Farrah Terminata said, or I pierce your brain where you stand. Oh, okay, he said. She pushed him forward as the rest of the Boston forces followed. Put your guns down, the NYC heavy shouted. Put them down. Fuck are these assholes, someone shouted from the catwalk. Where's Cho, Aris shouted. He ain't here, came a reply from the catwalk. Bullshit, said Aris. I know he's in there. Tell that fat fuck to get down here. I know for a fact you're fucking wrong. Someone else in the catwalk laughed at this. He ain't fucking here, and you're all fucking dead unless you back the fuck up now. Tell him to come out unarmed and no fucking funny shit, Aris shouted. He gestured and Wendell sent the K or BKs towards both staircases. They stopped just short of the first step. You tell your boys to drop their weapons or they're all fucking dead, said Aris. Understood? The captain winced as Farrah Terminata's talon pushed deeper into his chin. Both sides waited, agitated and jumpy. Then the doors beside the wormway lift burst open. Oh shit, said Lisa too, and pulled back. Chief Doyen strode in next to a man in a suit, some state troopers, and a half dozen other men in military uniforms. The Boston crew began shouting. Doyen glared at him. All right, all right, settle down, Boston, Harris shouted into his comms, slowly as people quieted, keeping guns trained on the NYC heavy boys. This is it. Surrender now. What the fuck, said Doyen. His voice was amplified from speakers on his riot armor. Who the fuck are you? The guy putting an end to this shit, said Aris. All right, said Doyen, and he began to laugh. It's you, the little fucking guy with Casal. What are you doing here, punk? This is a secure federal government facility. It's over, said Aris. Done. Don't give us any trouble, because you're finished. This is a city matter, said Doyen. I'm here with Mayor Ransom, and I know all about it, Aris shouted. The bombs lining the tunnels, weapons, deals made with the state police, SoCo and Free Canada. Got all the proof in a data packet on its way to GKN Media. Doyne's face changed. He looked at the men next to him. I thought your guys were going to be on top of things, he said. The mayor scowled, protesting quietly. The state troopers muttered into their wrists. The military men looked unnerved and moved behind the troopers. Doyen turned back to ours. Well, I guess you ruined the big surprise, asshole. But it doesn't change anything. Just tell us how to disarm the bombs, Doyen. Not gonna happen, said Doyen. You're too late. There's a lot invested in this. Your little people's army isn't gonna fucking stop it now. Doyen turned to one of the officers next to him, a tall Caucasian in dark military uniform with maple leaves on the shoulders and hat. Cute, ain't it, General Schwinnard? The general's smile was visibly weak, even at distance. We've got more people outside, Doyen, said Aris. Homeland Services is on their way. Best to stand down. Stand down, you say? Laughed Doyen. <laughs> like you're some kind of fucking soldier? You're not a soldier. You're a little gangbanger with a gun. Me? I'm a fucking warrior. Victorious. And the victors get the spoils, right? So check out what I got. As Doyen motioned, someone emerged from the corridor behind him. A woman in black boots done up with red laces. Her black tights bore intricate cutouts revealing tan skin underneath. 
A blue leather coat shone under the lights. It's ermine lining, a jagged flash of black and white. She wore a black mask, covering everything but her eyes. A tuft of black hair shot through with glowing blue highlights poked out from under the bill of her baseball cap. Aras would know that body in those eyes anywhere. Baby G. You remember Mr. Cho's wife, Grace, right? Said Doyen. She was one of your angels, yeah? You used to date her and then she dumped you. He told me all about it. He sent her up to personally oversee the transition of Boston into the New Hub territory. And see how she kept uh, something from the old days? That glove, I believe. Oh, and uh, you see what else she's holding? Baby G turned, then pulled Anna Maria up, a hand wrapped tight around her forearm. Baby G held a sharp metal claw next to Anna Maria's face. Anna Maria was handcuffed. Her face was puffy and bruised. Yet there was still defiance in her eyes. That's right, said Baby G. Your sister. So tell your fucking army of humps to drop their guns, and we just might let them live after we take over the city. Where the fuck is Cho? Wendell whispered in Aris's earpiece. Aris looked between Doyen, Baby G, and his sister's good eye, blood rushing in his ears as loud as guns. Come on. Don't be a little fucking bitch, said Doyen. This isn't the movies. No time for a speech before you save the fucking day. You're done, said Peha, said Baby G. Aris tried to think of something to say. Nothing came to mind. Well, Boston didn't come here to lose, he finally said. We've had enough, too. He signaled through his HUD to the entire Boston crew. Time to fuck them up, shouted Tiny Town. The Boston crew opened fire with the faker-made guns blasting at the catwalk. NYC returned fire, and they scrambled for cover behind the haulers and crates. The NYC crew's guns gouged entry holes into the crates that left red-hot molten rings in their wake. As they hit the Boston heavy boys, the rounds pierced their fat suits, popping them like balloons. Aris watched as the firefight began dropping Boston heavies hard. A squad of Boston heavy boys launched themselves into the air, fat suits gleaming under the overhead lights. The NYC crew were too late to react as the Boston crew crashed into them like a pallet of bricks. The catwalks bent under their weight. The dead, either those crushed or those hit by gunfire, rolled off and dropped to the supercrete floor in a clatter of metal and bodies. The K or BKs rolled up the other stairs. They fired their way into the group cluttered at the door. Those in front blew a white powder at the NYC heavy boys from tubes concealed in their white coveralls. Wendell, what the fuck is that shit they're blowing? Aris shouted. It's powder made from fugu fish, Wendell said in his ear. That shit's mad toxic, said Aris. If it doesn't paralyze them, it'll make them zombies, said Wendell. Fucks them up either way. Another NYC squad emerged from doors at the far end by the elevator. Aris watched as the angels and KRBKs routed them. The few survivors dropped their weapons and surrendered, arms in the air as they fell to their knees. My boys got that elevator secure, said Wendell. Aris peeked up from behind a crate to see KRBKs throwing bodies from the catwalk as others led prisoners to the bottom. More KRBKs held Doyen's group at bay. During the fight, a squad of heavy boys took flight and dived into them. They'd knocked a few of the troopers down and disarmed them. The rest stood their ground, rifles holding the Boston crew at bay as they stood at the top of the crumpled stairs. At the foot of the stairs, one of the double tigers held the mayor in a headlock, whispering quietly to him. The other angels grabbed the two generals, holding them just as close. You're next, Doyen, said Aris, unless you give up now. 
No fucking way, said Doyen. He pushed Baby G and Anna Maria inside, then dove behind the closing doors. A hail of gunfire slammed into them as the doors sealed shut. Wendell! Aris shouted, looking over at his friend. They ran up the rickety stairs to stand before the bullet-riddled doors. We need to get in there. What about these two pricks? said an angel, holding her knife hand at the free Canadian general's throat. Another had put on the Soko general's hat. Keep him alive, said Aris. Bet Homeland Services would be really interested to see him. They shuffled the generals away to stand by the haulers. A banging began on the outside doors below them. That's gonna be the stadies backup, said Tiny Town. Leave him to us. Go get your sister. Aris nodded as Tiny Town ordered his men into place, then examined the doors. They were modern, heavy steel, built to withstand police battering rams. Did we shoot it? said a KRBK next to Wendell. Nope, said Wendell. This kind of door has a hyper-coolant gel inside. If the metal gets hot, it expands and weakens. The hyper-coolant keeps it cold and strong, and not much is going to pierce it. The commotion below grew louder. Horace looked around the space. How old do you think this place is, he said. What? asked Wendell. How old do you think it is, Horace said. Like a couple decades or... Jesus, I don't know, said Wendell. Let's call the Historical Society and... No, 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 listen. I just... Aris walked to one side of the doors and pounded the walls with a fist. I bet it's a good hundred years old, give or take. So what, said Wendell. Aris looked at Wendell, surrounded by his ghostly crew, smiled, then beckoned the heavy boy over. When the boy came to stand beside him, Aris put a hand on his shoulder. What's your name, he asked him. Spike Moans, said the boy. Okay, Spike Moans, go Jovian and run at that, all right, he said, then pointed to a spot in the wall. The heavy boy nodded. Give him some rope, Aris shouted. Everyone in the balcony stepped back. When Spike Moans adjusted his suit, they watched as it rippled. With a yell, he ran at the wall. A split second before contact, he flipped the suit's weight to full. As he rolled his shoulder forward, Spike Moans came crashing into the wall with the force of a meteor falling from space. The wall crumbled underneath him. When the dust cleared, Aris saw Spike Moans had rolled through a cinder block wall, a metal wall, then a plaster one behind that. Told you it was old, Wendell. They should hire a better contractor, said Aris. He stepped into the hole and helped Spike Moans up. Good job, kid. Aris opened the doors and shouted, All right, let's fucking do this. They roared and surged forward, instantly filling the empty hall. Every surveillance camera they passed was shot out multiple times. Spread out, said Aris. This place is huge. No telling where they could be. Find them and hold them. No one touches Doyen, Cho's wife, or my sister. They spread forward, meeting little obstruction. Reports coming in over Aris's HUD and comms suggested state troopers were encountering Tiny Town's combined K or BK, Heavy Boy, and Angel crews and trading fire with them. He hoped they could hold them off until Homeland Services arrived. At an intersection, two smaller groups of K or BK and Heavy Boy split off. Holler if you find anything, said Wendell. The main group pressed on, stopping at a pair of doors marked Central Oversight, Operations Control. Must be the place, said Aris. He kicked in the doors. A pair of war brides behind the doors swiveled their guns around to face them. Down! Get down! shouted Aris. His stealth suit was made for moving fast, but armored only against light arms fire. With proper warning, a fat suit could handle heavier rounds. The war bride's heavy guns cut a dozen heavy boys down in less than a second. Aris saw a purple blur at the edge of his vision. 
One of the war brides tracked this and fired the arc of its turret coming to rest on the other war bride. The rounds shattered the other war bride's legs. Lisa, too, acrobatically threw herself at the first war bride, landing on its top. With her powered arm, she twisted the gun barrel. As the rounds backed up inside, fat dents appeared. Smoke poured from the barrel's twisted end. With her claw, she grabbed and squeezed the sensor head, then tore it out with a grunt. The war bride collapsed in a smoking heap, and Lisa, too, collapsed next to it. Fuck! she shouted. Blood flowed from around shredded legging on her left thigh. Son of a bitch got me! She banged her giant hand against the war bride's leg, breaking it at the joint. Someone get her safe and patched up, said Aris. The rest of us keep moving. The control center was arranged in two rows of cubicle workstations. While currently empty, the room had clearly seen recent activity. All the info deck displays were lit, as were the large main boards at the far end of the room. Warm coffee cups steamed and cigarettes burned in a few ashtrays. The Boston crew spread out, checking under decks and closed office doors to the side. In here, shouted a KRBK. Aris pushed through, shouting, keep looking around. At the door where KRBK stood, Aris saw a conference room crammed full of 30 frightened people. None looked like Cho's men in their suits and lab coats. Please don't shoot us, said an older man with white hair. That man Cho hired our firm, then kidnapped us all, forced us to work here, or he would have killed us and all our families. You're safe now, said Aris. Where's Cho now? Don't know, said the man. That cop just came through with two women, though. One was in cuffs. Maybe they're in the mainframe's deep core room? Where's that, said Aris. Down to the doors at the end. Go through and keep going. When it gets colder, you're close. Keep an eye on him, said Aris, to the boy at the door. To the technician, he said, stay put. Homeland services are on their way. As Aris left and moved down the row of cubicles, Wendell caught up with him. You said Homeland Services is on the way, said Wendell. They stopped and listened as the sounds of gunfire in the loading bay increased. You know some of us are wanted men. Pretty sure an emergency alarm from a Wormway control hub will make them investigate, said Aris, pointing to an alarm notice on the big display over their heads. When they see and hear the fighting, they're bound to check us out. And if they don't, said Wendell, more party time for us, Aris said. They stood in front of three sets of double doors, each numbered but unmarked. Now which doors did that guy mean, said Wendell. Split up here, said Aris. I got the center. Put a couple folks on either of the side doors. Stay in touch. Got it, said Wendell. Aris opened the door and stepped into a dark hall lit by red emergency lights. He and two heavy boys ran its length to a pair of doors at the end. The room inside was dark, lit only by sparse blue lights. To either side of him, cages contained server racks with rows and rows of blinking lights. Despite the presence of so much equipment, the room was definitely colder than the hall outside. As he stepped forward, he tripped and saw a small metal disc on the floor. The fuck? he said as a steel wall slammed down behind him. Aris barely had time to move his foot before it rammed home. The heavy boys behind him pounded hard on it, but it held. Magnetically locked, Aris shouted, fuck! It's carbon flex, said the older heavy boy. Gonna bend and harden the more we hit it. See what you can do, said Aris. I'll keep going. As Aris proceeded into the darkness, he switched his shades to infrared. Comms icons flashed offline as the sound of battle faded into static. After a few twists and turns among the towering rows of servers, he came to a central area protected by clear panels. 
Inside stood a tall black column. In front stood Doyen, cradling a shotgun. Anna Maria lay in front of him, immobile. Baby G stood nearby. So how you doing, guy? Doyen asked. His voice rang out in the cold, empty room. You like our setup? Fuck you. Let's end this, Doyen, said Oris. Maybe it's because I've been in New York for a while now, but the thing about Boston is it's just so small scale. Miniature, you know, said Baby G. She hefted a combat shotgun in one hand. Her face mask swung loose on its strap at her neck. Everything's smaller than NYC, you know? Especially the way people think. Especially the Boston crews just thought it was all about territory and corners in the city. Speak for the gangbangers, lady, said Doyen. But my Chadwick taught me to think about things on a bigger scale, said Baby G. Taught me to think more about the big picture, not just little shit in front of you. My sister, said Aris. This deal is going to set us up for a lifetime, Doyen said, stepping forward. Aris trained his gun on the man's massive chest. Consolidating power for a long time to come. Hopefully for generations. And we'd like you to live uh, just long enough to see it happen. Ain't that right, Mrs. Cho? Aris heard fabric flutter as something landed behind him. He turned in time to see Baby G's taloned glove stop in front of his face, a sharpened thumb blade parked in the soft center of his throat. Hey, future, she said. Her voice was muffled, the mask covering her face again. Painted lupine teeth adorned the front between the two ventilators. Baby G's dilated pupils told him she was flying with some help from the KK. Senses heightened and reflexes sharpened by the drug. People ignored what it did to their nerve endings over time with side effects like that. Aura stayed put. God, I forgot how skinny you were, she purred. I like a thicker man with more to him, like my Chadwick. Lucky him, said Aris. Where is he? Or are you banging machine man over here now? <laughs> I wish, said Doyen. No, sir, said Baby G, eyes glittering blue like the blade she held at his throat. I'm with Cho for life. Speaking of which, uh, we mustn't keep him waiting. Uh, are we ready, Mrs. Cho? Said Doyen. Absolutely, said Baby G. Doyen slid a panel on the column's side, revealing a hardwired console with keyboard and flat screen. He tapped out a string of commands, then said, Glad we kept it simple. Didn't expect any interlopers, Mr. Aguilar. Uh, that should do it. So I just hit return and... Anna Maria jerked her legs back, knocking Doyen off balance. He fell back, firing the shotgun. The gunshot was bright in Aris' shades and deafening in the room. Doyen hit the floor hard as a panel fell from the ceiling, striking his eye. His gun fell from his hand, clattering off to the side. Aris dropped to a knee, pulling his tactical knife from its sheath. He whirled and slashed in an upward arc. His timing depended on a millisecond lapse of Baby G's drug-induced, hyper-focused concentration. Time hung loose in the air between his movements. As she fell back, a diagonal slice opened her unitard where the blade made contact. Under the blue lights, Baby G's blood began pouring from the deep wound. Aris's knife had passed over her groin, making one more slice above her hip where it opened fabric over her belly. Baby G's muffled scream from behind her mask faltered as she dropped to the ground. She curled up, scraping at air with her talons while clutching the other hand to her belly. You fucking Jesse guy, she said through gritted teeth. You're not getting out of here. 
Aris turned to see Anna Maria wrapped around Doyen in a scissor lock. Her powerful legs were wrapped around his ribs as she straddled his belly. He struggled and swore, one eye blackened and swelling shut. Aris grabbed Doyen's shotgun from the floor. Anna Maria screamed, Aris, no! He slammed the butt down on Doyen's forehead. The man grunted and went silent. His good eye unfocused then closed. Thank you, said Anna Maria, letting her legs go. We need Doyen alive. Bummer, said Aris. I was looking forward to... Look out, shouted Anna Maria. He whirled as Baby G dove at him. Aris swung the shotgun up and pulled the trigger, firing off five rounds in two seconds. What landed at his feet was Baby G's bloody corpse minus her head and shoulders. Her torso and legs twitched as her severed arms flew past Aris to land behind him. Jesus, said Anna Maria. she a cyborg or something? KK, said Aris. He felt nauseous looking at Baby G's corpse. Her blood steamed in the cold. People full of it just get shot up and keep twitching for a couple minutes. Aris, said Anna Maria, help me up off this floor. I'm fucking freezing. She was unsteady on her legs as he lifted her. Aris freed Anna Maria's hands by pressing Doyen's thumb against the cuff's biometric lock. She rubbed her wrists while looking down at the unconscious man. What are you going to do with him, he asked. She took a pair of cuffs from her belt and slapped them on Doyen's wrists. Anna Maria then took the shotgun from Aris and smashed the butt on Doyen's hands. Doyen didn't move. Aris winced at the sound of cracking bones. That's nasty, sis. That's what he gets for fucking with me and my little brother. Anna Maria surveyed her work and nodded. He ought to be out at least until backup arrives. They'll be here by now, I think, he said. Well, they better be, she said. Black ops and all. Can you walk? He asked her. Yeah, she said. I'm fine. They limped out of the deep core room back to the steel emergency door. Aris banged hard on it. After a few seconds, the door slid up fast and loud, and a dozen HS officers trained rifles with lights on them. Freeze! One shouted. It's all right, Anna Maria said. He's with me. They surrounded, then escorted them into the main control room. Someone secure that core room and make sure there's no bombs ticking away down below, Anna Maria said to an agent next to her. Neutralize the whole thing. If you have to shut the wormway down temporarily, you have my authority. Yes, ma'am, said the agent. Now where the fuck is Cho? Anna Maria shouted. Yuki, said Aris. You gotta find Yuki. Who? said Anna Maria. Oh, right, the girl genius. Charlie team on Operation Hudson Hoarded has a young woman in custody, ma'am, said one of the agents. How'd that go? Anna Maria asked. Some medic checked her wounds. Found the girl and her family, he replied. But Target escaped. Target, said Aris. Cho, apparently, said Anna Maria. She hissed as the medic touched her swollen eye. Guess he left his wife to run the show up here. Any leads, Sergeant? We've got teams out searching, said the agent. But his estate borders a 64,000-acre forest, ma'am. So fucking what, Anna Maria said. Aris recognized some of her old anger in that reply. A lot of fugitives go missing there, ma'am, said another agent. It's weird. It's been like that for centuries. They say... Stearns, you get the fuck out of my face with your ghost stories, or so help me, I will kill you with that bitch's claw myself. Anna Maria pointed to the stretcher borne by a pair of HS drones with Baby G's remains stacked on it. Ma'am, said the agent, backing away from her. We get this cleaned up, then I want teams in that fucking forest and me in a chopper overhead, said Anna Maria. Fat fuck like Cho can't just run off into deep woods in winter without leaving a trail of blood or footprints or something. Yes, ma'am, said the sergeant. Anna Maria looked at him and Wendell as he approached. 
You get them all? he asked. Uh, kinda, said Aris. He suddenly felt his legs wobble underneath him. You okay, boss? said Wendell. Yeah, said Aris. I think the adrenaline's wearing off. Yeah, mine too, said Wendell. HS officers swarmed into the room. Aris saw video feeds of the loading bay where more HS agents and medics were attending to the wounded. Aris saw too many shrouds over bodies, both in fat suits and white coveralls. One in particular caught his eye, and he leaned closer. What's up with Tiny Town? Aris asked. Can't get him on the hood. Your boy went down going after a whole mess of stadies, said Wendell. Aris nodded, knowing he'd grieve as it all wound down. He went out fighting hard. That's just how he wanted it, said Aris, stumbling to his knees. Aris, said Anna Maria. He lifted a hand from his belly, staring at the bloody palm. Guess baby G stuck me just one last time, he said. The room darkened as he went down in a swirling sinkhole. Anna Maria shouting, Need a medic! was the last thing he heard before blacking out. Chapter 18, there you go. A tribal malfunctions. Oh my gosh, I think we're at the penultimate episode. That might be the last or second to last chapter. I don't know, even though I wrote a book. But what I can tell you is this. Uh, uh, next time, it's uh, coming to a crazy conclusion. Uh, <clears throat> just one thing I want to let you know about the recording of this. Um, I recorded in my home. Uh, when I can catch the time and hope the house is as quiet as I can get it. However, I love my dog. He sleeps in a bed in my office. And uh, so you hear him snoring, his collar jingling, stuff like that. You might hear a little water going through pipes overhead because I'm in a basement. I try to keep it as clean and clear and professional as possible, but sometimes that just doesn't work. Sometimes real life just intrudes on the podcast. So yeah, that's it. Uh, anyway, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, tune in next time for Travel Malfunctions. I think uh, I think it's the second to last episode. I don't know. We'll see. And uh, again, um, as I said, this is dedicated to my mother, Gretchen Archer Hume. Mom, I love you dearly and missing you dearly. Um, sorry about all the swearing. Okay, until next time, peace out and namaste. <laughs> Oh, my God.
but we'd be for nothing. Uh, got a freeze for our art, bitch. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? Adam nodded. You... Oh, shit. Uh. <laughs> <coughs>